Welcome to the Global Band Room, a podcast about bands and musicians across the world. My name is Keith Kelly and I'm a band director from the west coast of Ireland. Each episode, I sit down with musicians to talk about their stories and bands and how they're making an impact in their communities. Before we start, you can find out more about the podcast and the people and stories that we feature over at globalbandroom.com and you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Global Bandroom. All of the Global Bandroom podcasts are brought to you by Kaleidoscope Adventures. Find out how you can travel beyond expectations at mykatrip.com. Now on with the show. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the podcast and to the Global Band Room, a man that I had the pleasure to meet and show around Ireland and bring his group around Ireland for many performances here. here. Uh, back in 2019, I think it was, uh, with the Tacoma Concert Band, this is Robert Musser, uh, and I'm absolutely delighted to have him because he's just after finishing and publishing a, a new book, and I'm looking forward to getting uh, stuck into finding all about that book today. Robert, welcome to the Global Band Room. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, Robert, you're coming to me from Tacoma, Washington, all the way on the west coast of the USA. Uh, probably one of the furthest away uh, guests that I've had in a while. Okay. Actually, the northwest coast. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and tell me, how are things in? Uh, how are things on that side of the USA now at the moment? Uh, well, at the moment, uh, they're just fine. Just, we have, we've had a lot of fires this summer and, you know, smoke has uh, been a problem for a lot of the communities, not, not ours in particular, but uh, no, everything's fine. Weather's good. We've, we've had a lot of hot weather. We had well over 90 days without rain, which is unusual in this part of the country, but now it's raining. <laughs> I think I think Ireland and uh, Washington uh, seem seemingly have a very similar climate, so I, I totally understand that <laughs> when you right. get a, a long period without rain, it's kind yeah, of strange. We think rain, think rain. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, unlike some of the guests that I've had recently, Robert, um, uh, you had. Uh, the, the fortune to retire just before this whole mess of COVID-19 uh, hit. So um, uh, you were already sort of spending your time uh, reflecting and writing this book that we're going to talk about today. But how, uh, you know, aside from writing the book, how has COVID, uh, that this period treated you? Have you been able to, to travel? Have you been able to do the things that you wanted to do? Well, not travel, not travel during COVID. You know, we pretty much... Uh, stayed home and stayed isolated, at least in the beginning when it was at its worst. Uh, and uh, so travel is something we haven't done since COVID began. Uh, we, we traveled a lot before that, and we plan to travel a lot now. We've got a bunch of trips uh, planned at this point in time. No, COVID uh, pretty much kept me at home, but that gave me the opportunity to write this book, uh, I, which I don't think I would have ever done had it not been <laughs> for that. So, so tell me a little bit about, before we get into the book, um, I want to find out a little bit about you, um, Robert. Um, uh, obviously, I, I had the, the, um, uh, the opportunity to, to work closely with you and the Tacoma Concert Band, and, and that's certainly a, a band that you're synonymous with, uh, and certainly a really, really fine uh, community concert band, but, but even in saying that probably doesn't give it its full credit for this standard that it performs at. It's, it's an amazing, uh, a band. And, and certainly you can see a lot of your, uh, 
beliefs about music education and about music performance and expressiveness come out in that band as well. Uh, but let's find out a little bit. I want to find out a little bit about you and your background, Robert. Um, uh, had you got a musical childhood? Well, yes, yes. Uh, let's see. I started to play the saxophone when I was in the fifth grade, let's say 10 years old. And that was my first instrument. And I played that through through the junior high school up to, uh, well, I still play the saxophone. So that was my first instrument. Then uh, in, in high school, I started to play the clarinet because I also, because I wanted to play in the dance band. Now in those mm. days, what we now call jazz bands, uh, we called dance bands, okay? Because that was still the, the era of, of dance bands, uh, you know, the part of the, at the end of the big band era. So I started to play the clarinet so I could play in the school dance band. Then I went to college as a music major, uh, playing clarinet and saxophone. And I uh, went to a, a small liberal arts school called Lebanon Valley College, which is in Pennsylvania. And a very fine uh, music department, particularly for a school of that size. Then uh, while, while I was in college, uh, as I said, I played saxophone and, and clarinet. My woodwind teacher, who was very well known throughout the, the Northeast, his name was Frank Stackow, produced a lot of wonderful students. At any rate, he came up to me and he said, uh, next year, we're only going to have one oboe player. He said, how would you like to learn to play the oboe? <laughs> I, see, now I was the uh, end of my freshman year in college. I said, well, okay. And uh, so I started to play the oboe and I just loved the oboe. So I practiced like crazy that summer and that fall I was an oboe player. And, and uh, so that, now I became an oboe player. So that really became my major instrument. Mm. Along the way then, he, Mr. Stackhouse says, well, Musser, you already play three of the woodwind instruments. You better learn, you should learn the other two. So I took <laughs> up the flute and the bassoon. So when I graduated from uh, college, I played my senior recital on, on four instruments. The, the flute, oboe, clarinet, and saxophone. I didn't add the bassoon because I still couldn't play that very well. So uh, that was my musical journey through there. I graduated from college and I became a high school band director. So I caught a couple of years in a small town in Pennsylvania. And um, my first love, though, or I don't know, one of my loves was I wanted to play professionally, like so many kids that go go to college and they play an instrument, they dream of playing professionally. So I had the, uh, at the same time, I had this wanderlust. I'd never been out of the state of Pennsylvania and uh, I, uh, I'd i love to travel the world. So two things happened at one time. I found out there was an opening for a noble player in the Honolulu Orchestra. Well, wow. So I made, I made, uh, contact with the people in Honolulu and said, I would love to audition for this position. And they said, well, it so happens that our conductor will be in New York City at such and such time. And we'll make an appointment for you to audition with him. So I took the train uh, to New York City and I auditioned for the conductor. His name was George Barati, and he offered me the job. So I moved to Honolulu. Played, not, played a bad, not a played bad place to move to. Yeah, what a place to the one talk about well, the wonderlust. And, and so here I'm, I'm going from Pennsylvania, uh, which had a climate I didn't particularly love, and off to Hawaii. So that was that was great for a young 
for a young guy. And uh, so I played in the Honolulu Symphony. And believe it or not, I got tired of two things. One, I got tired of Hawaii because I got uh, I got tired of being on an island. You know, if you if you drive forty miles in any direction, you come to the ocean. So, uh, <laughs> and I wasn't making enough money to afford to do anything except lay on the beach. So, uh, which sounds really good for a while, but after a while, I decided, okay, I wanted to get off the island, and I didn't really want to play professionally full time for the rest of my life. That that wasn't for me. So can I ask Robert um, yeah. what what changed in that short period of time? Um, because you see this happening with a lot of uh, professional musicians, uh, particularly military band musicians. Yeah. Uh, they tend to maybe um, lose um, the same passion for it that they may have had for for, for yeah. performing while not losing passion for music. Um, what was it at the time that you you think changed your mind? Okay, well I. I didn't lose nor never lost the passion for performing. Mm. In fact, I continued to play professionally throughout my career. Uh, what I lo- what I didn't decided I didn't want to do was to make that my full time job and try mm. to audition for orchestras all over the world and and work my way up the the the, the ladder till I finally made enough money. Uh, Maybe that was part of it, too. I, I realized that, gee, unless I wound up in the Philadelphia Orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, I, I didn't know if I'm going to make enough money. But that wasn't something I wanted to do. So I, two things happened. One was what I just said, maybe economically. Two, I didn't know if I was good enough to ever make it to the top rung of the best 20 orchestras in the world. And uh, I didn't like the atmosphere and the feeling of a professional orchestra. It, it felt like people didn't support each other. Mm-hmm. They were always in competition with each other. Um, that sort of thing, when, when I was used to college and, and teaching high school and playing, I played professionally while I was teaching too. I played in the, the Harrisburg Symphony Orchestra, which is professional, not nearly at the level of Honolulu. But... Um, Everything was different when you're a full-time professional. It's like, boy, when 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 the time to quit comes, bam, you're done. The production, you know, that's it. The the personnel manager steps, stands up and says, "We're done." And I don't know this this that whole feeling. I didn't like. It wasn't the the playing that I didn't like. Then I found out also that at least in those days, they didn't have blind auditions in those days. You know, mm. auditioning from behind a curtain. Uh, a lot of times they already, these orchestras already knew who they were going to hire. They just went through the motions. I had a really good friend in the Honolulu Symphony at the time. He played horn, a young man like myself. He wanted to be a professional horn player. He studied with the great Philip Farkas and he found out that there was an opening in the Boston Symphony for, I don't know, third or fourth horn. I don't remember. And he decided he was going to go and audition. Now he's going all the way from Honolulu to Boston and staying as long as he needed to a lot of money. He had, he was all arranged to go. His teacher, Philip Farkas called him and said, don't go. They already know who they're going to hire. Don't spend all the money. That sort of colored my feeling Mm -hmm. also. If that's the way it is, I don't know. So that's a long answer to your short question. <laughs> well, you know, uh, like anyone that 
anyone that's been part of the uh, military bands, uh, certainly here in Ireland, there was a there was a phrase that was used: "When you're gone, you're gone." And it's uh, this idea that you know um, you are a you are a, a cog in the wheel sometimes of these professional uh, bodies. They're, they're fantastic musicians. Uh, they're fantastic ensembles. Uh, but sometimes it's just as soon as you're gone, your replacement is in and. Um, it, it certainly doesn't have that camaraderie of the, the community band or the college or the high school bands, like, yeah. like you mm. said. Yeah. Different feeling altogether. But I never lost my love for performing and continued to do it through, through my entire career. I played, I played in five different professional orchestras in, in oboe in, in the course of my career, not to mention all the theater orchestras and uh, dance bands and jazz bands and, you know, everything along the way. So... I never lost my love for performing. When did the and I know you were working as a as a as a as a school teacher for for some time, uh, but when did the real love for conducting um, start, Robert? Probably during my first uh, couple of years of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I took conducting in in college, and I thought, you know, this is great. But what I really want to do is play oboe professionally, play saxophone professionally. Uh, but while teaching in those first couple of years, I, I really enjoyed uh, conducting. And so that love of conducting just continued. Even though I went to Honolulu to play professionally, um, after that, I thought, what I, what I really want to do is to be a, a school, high school band director. Then I, you know, I already had been before I went to Honolulu, but then I moved from there to the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area and became a high school band director and was pretty successful at it and, and really loved it. But I decided I want to be a college band director <laughs> and largely because I really want to make music at, at the highest level that I'm capable of. I, and and I, so I felt that I, I wanted to go to college where, you know, had a better chance of playing the very finest literature and so I had that love of conducting all the way through there and never lost it. So tell me, you, you went on to become a, a, a college uh, conductor and um, it's, it's out of that that um, many of your alumni years later um, uh, start to maybe, you start to consider maybe forming a band where they'll be able to continue to uh, perform at a, at a high level. And this is sort of the origins of what's now the Tacoma Concert Band. Can you tell me about that sort of period and and why you founded this band? Yes. Uh, I moved from the Bay Area. My first college job was in uh, Wichita, Kansas. I taught at Wichita State University. And from there, I moved to the University of Puget Sound, uh, where I finished my career. And that was 1971. And while I was at Puget Sound, I, I was able to develop the, the uh, university wind ensemble into a very good group, certainly one of the best in the, in the Northwest. And all, during that period of time, I was playing oboe in the, in the uh, Tacoma Symphony, principal oboe in the Tacoma Symphony. I was playing all around the uh, Puget Sound area. I was a, a freelance musician playing all the woodwinds and so forth. And I say this only because for 10 years, between 71 and 81, I was, I was doing this. And I got to know and be known by probably all the finest musicians in, in the Puget Sound area. So long about 81, I decided that 
I would like to form a community band. There weren't very many community bands in the Puget Sound area at the time. And there were, and there certainly weren't any that were really good. Okay. There were a lot of them were, were typical community bands. I, and I, I say that in that typical community bands are wonderful and they're all over the mm-hmm. world. Okay. But the kind of band where just about anybody is welcome, you know, uh, so you so you played clarinet in high school and it's up in the attic and it's dusty. Well, get it out and come on and show up and play. That's I wanted to start a community band that was at the highest level, capable of playing anything in the literature, and a band for all of those fine musicians who had no nowhere else to play. You know, they they graduated from college, they they wonderful players, they had no place to play. So I created the band basically for that reason. And that was 81. And the, 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 what, the way I did that was I got a, a bunch of my musician friends together and said, this is what I want to do. They thought, that's as great. this is great. And I said, let's make a list of the best wind players we know in the Puget Sound area, particularly the Tacoma area, but throughout the Puget Sound that don't have a place to play. They're not in one of the, they're not in the Seattle Symphony. They're not in the Tacoma Symphony. They have no place to play. So we made this list. We divided up the names and we started to call the people. Not one person that we called said no. No one. Isn't that amazing? They, they, They all said, we would love to do that. So and, and what was the sales pitch, Robert? What was the sales pitch that you were forming a community band, but but of course that wouldn't have been the sales pitch. Um, no, the sales how did you sell pitch, this to those musicians? The sales pitch was that this is not going to be a typical community band. We are forming a band that will play at a professional level, a semi-professional level. We intend to play the finest music in the literature. And that's with the best musicians we can find. And, I, and then we would start to name some of them we already knew were going to play. And as I said, I was pretty well known and respected at the time, not just as a band director, but as a musician, because I played professionally. Mm-hmm. So this was the sales pitch. Well, this is going to be a top-notch band. And people said, I, I would like to be a part of that, because we would name, well, so-and-so is playing, and I'm so-and-so playing trumpet, and so-and-so. We even had a couple of people from the Seattle Symphony that that we're going to play and join us. And uh, that was a sales pitch. Everybody said, yeah, we would love to do this. The first rehearsal, the first rehearsal, I had a full instrumentation. And I mean full, right down to uh, two bassoons, uh, an English horn, an alto clarinet, etc. Full instrumentation. And we, we played some the very first concert we played some we played the Hindemith Symphony, the Rienzi Overture, the Scottish Dances arranged by John Painter. Uh, mm, I can't remember the other pieces, but heavy, heavy literature, mm. and people were thrilled. They they left the first rehearsal and stood around in the parking lot talking about how wow, this is the best band I ever played in. Wow, this is really, really great. So that's how it began. Amazing. Uh, I mean, it. Th- we we've drawn these parallels before, Robert, with the Irish Symphonic Wind Orchestra, which was formed in a from a very similar um, uh, wish to play higher level repertoire. Where you have community bands that are playing, uh, doing great work all around the country, uh, but they're maybe they're they're higher level musicians 
want to play that higher level repertoire. Um, over the years, Robert, um, the repertoire that Tacoma Concert played, you, you've been responsible for commissioning some works and sort of developing the wind band uh, library uh, as such. Can you tell me about some of your your mo- your, your your proudest uh, commissions and, and involvement in that sort of line of work? Oh yes, I ha. I wish I would have made a list of them now, so I can. I think we. I think we commissioned about six pieces, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the first one was maybe the most exciting because it was the first one. But we commissioned Robert Jager, um, which I hope is a well-known composer's name to to, to the band world. Uh, mm-hmm. We commissioned Robert Jager to compose a piece for us based upon. The uh, an inspiration he might get from the glassworks of the great Dale Chihuly. Uh, now, Dale Chihuly, of course, is internationally known as a glass artist, but he's from Seattle. In fact, that's where he makes the glass. So Jager composed this piece uh, in three movements based upon his interpretation or his feelings from the inspiration from Dale Chihuly's glassworks. Um, that piece, uh, w- which the commission eventually was published, it's called uh, A Sea of Glass Mingled with Fire. And it's in three movements, and it's an exciting piece. So that was, uh, and and we did this in, in our local uh, concert hall, and Dale Chihuly provided these big, gorgeous glass pieces to display. And so, so that was exciting. Then... After that, we we commissioned a piece from David Holsinger. Um, boy, how am I going? Aldo Forte. Com- we commissioned a piece from him, uh, a piece from a local composer by the name of uh, Robert Hutchinson. Oh boy, and I'm not going to remember them all. <laughs> One of the most exciting parts of any journey is the anticipation of the adventure to come, planning your route, investigating the attractions, and researching the local culture. But sometimes, as music educators, it's easy to get swept up in the mountain of work it takes to bring your students on that next band trip. And that joy and anticipation can be lost, or worse, can turn into dread. With over 28 years of experience, Kaleidoscope Adventures has a world-class team of travel and performance experts ready to make this process not just easy, but exciting, leaving you and your students to continue doing what you do best, and looking forward to an experience of a lifetime. When you're ready to travel beyond expectations, contact Kaleidoscope Adventures at mykatrip.com. When I had you over in Ireland, uh, we brought you to uh, Clonakilty, which is a small town in the south Mm -hmm. of Ireland, uh, and there's a wonderful band festival happens in Clonakilty, and it's a band competition, actually. Uh, uh, but it's not like the competitions that people might be Im- imagining if they're used to competition in the US. Uh, this is a small, small little town, picturesque Irish little village. Uh, and on that town, 30 Irish bands descend every single year. And in 2019, in addition to those 30 bands, we had this fantastic US band, the Tacoma Concert Band there as well. Um, and everyone that's watching these bands perform are all band musicians themselves. And there's just a great atmosphere in the town and in the halls. Um, and you guys got probably the only standing ovation 
that I've ever seen uh, for a band. Uh, and this was from band musicians, people that know and people that love this art form. Um, your band was so well received. And, and I think that's to do with this idea of expression, which is what I want to get on to now and talk a bit, a bit about your book. Because the adjudicator on the day talked about... Uh, a few moments in his career where he's had the pleasure to sit down and listen to a band perform at such a high level and communicate in the way it did. I've never heard an adjudicator talk as positively about a performance as I did on that day. It was amazing to hear. It felt like a very special moment, you know? Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with this idea of expression. Can you tell me a little bit about, there's many things that a conductor at the, you know, when, when they've, uh, finish their and their career is um, uh, is is um, when they're wrapping up their career and they're retiring. There's many things that they probably feel that they should uh, talk about or write about. Expression was the thing that you hooked onto, though. Can you tell me a little about your your feelings on expression in music and why it was such an important to- topic to write about? Yes, during my entire first of all, I loved Clonakilty. That was great, and that experience was wonderful. Not only did I enjoy it, but everybody in the band did, and everybody we met was wonderful. That, that was uh, one of the highlights of my career, I think, was to well, visit that, that, that town and play for such, such a responsive audience. At any rate, we found, we found that all, all around Ireland, by the way. Loved Ireland and the Irish people. At any rate, to answer your question, um, I always, throughout my entire career, I always felt like I was a very expressive performer. Uh, that was the thing that I felt that I was really good at, okay? I never had the greatest technique in the world, um, but I could play musically. I had good technique, but I could, pl- I could play musically. And I felt like I conducted that way. At any rate, as, as most uh, college band directors do, that you adjudicate a lot of band contests. So through through my entire career, I adjudicated, I have no hundreds, I guess, of band, orchestra, and choir, and solo and ensemble contests. And I, I would say that during, uh, and taking all of those performances, I would say that most of them were technically very well done. Uh, All the technique was in place, good tone, good intonation, but they lacked musicality, musicality. They lacked expressiveness. I can't begin to tell you how many times on my adjudication sheet I would write something to that effect. Needs to be more musical. Yeah, it needs to be more expressive and maybe write some comments about where in the music it could have been and what they could have done. So that seemed to be something that I heard all the time, not only when I adjudicated contests, but when I would go to concerts, I would, I would hear top notch, not top, maybe not the Philadelphia orchestra, but I would hear <laughs> really good, good, uh, good bands, good orchestras play, but not musically, not expressively. And, and I, and I, so this was something I really always wanted to do. I wrote some articles on it along the way for journals and magazines, but I always wanted to sit down and write a book about what are the things 
that great artists do to be musical, to be expressive. I've always been under the impression that you can teach it. You can teach how, how to be musical. You can teach how to be expressive. It's just that it's not done most of the time. And uh, unless you're lucky enough, <clears throat> excuse me, to study with individually with a private teacher, and I was fortunate enough to do that, who taught you how to play musically, who taught, unless you did that, you didn't get it. You might play in a group where the conductor was musical, uh, but you didn't really know what made it that way. So that's that was why I wanted to write a book like that. And eventually, <clears throat> I sort of fooled around with it for the last 25 years of my career. <laughs> I'd start it, and set, but I never finished because I just didn't have time. The COVID, the COVID lock-in gave me the time. But that's that's basically why I did it. So to you, Robert, um, let's talk about a little bit about what expression is. Uh, beyond the notes on the page, uh, beyond playing <laughs> uh, Morecambe and Wise, the great British comedians, uh, I was used to talk about I'm playing all the right notes, just not necessarily in the right order. Um, <laughs> but beyond playing the right notes in the right, no the right order and beyond follow following the, um, yeah. the directions that are on the page, um, Expression is somewhere beyond that, and it's also so, it's also part of of what's the, that direction on the page. Uh, I'm sure as well. Um, where can we begin to find expression beyond the directions that are on the score? Well, let's to begin with <clears throat> the great artists, those who play expressively, they they play the same notes that we do. All right. They play the same notes. They use the same nuances. There's nothing magical about it. It's what they do with them that, that makes the difference. So um, the inspiration that they have to be creative with those same nuances. <clears throat> so I take the premise that where it starts, <clears throat> excuse me, where it starts is knowing what those nuances are and then making sure that you use them and use them in places that, that fit the mood of the music. And the other thing is that, okay, let me, let me do it another way. There are, there, there are three things that a musician or an ensemble must do to make the performance expressive. Three things. One, you have to create the imagery of movement in the mind of the listener. Mm. Now, that's, that's number one, I think. Create that image of movement, or you might think of it as the horizontal flow of, of the music, the connection from note to note. It's not a matter of and whatever you do, you don't accent always the first beat of the bar. Uh, accenting the first beat of the bar kills the flow of the music. The most important notes in the flow or horizontal motion, the movement of the music, are the upbeats. The stressing of the upbeat, not the downbeat. And a lot of musicians just don't know that. They just don't do that. The great artists do that. In, in ancient Greeks, the, the ancient Greeks divided 
um, the music into two two different um, parts. Uh, in order to, they classified the arts, I should say, into two groups. Um, one group was architecture, uh, sculpture, and painting. All right, the other other group was music, poetry, and dance. And in the first group, architecture, painting, and so forth, beauty was perceived uh, at, at one time with elements juxtaposed in, in space and perceived at one particular moment. But in the other group, beauty was perceived in the state of motion, music, uh, poetry, uh, dance. If it's not stationary, it moves. Mm-hmm. And so that to, to be convincingly expressive, um, the performer must create the imagery of movement. That's important. Too many performers don't do that. In my book, I explain how to do that. It's a matter of stressing the upbeat. It's the con- knowing where the line goes, the connection from w- looking at the musical line knowing what, what are the important notes, the notes to get a little more stress, where is the line going, and where is the, the, the most important part of that musical phrase, where we might add a tenuto, a rubato. Uh, you'd be surprised how many musicians don't know what a rubato is, uh, <laughs> and, they, and they don't use it. It's probably the most musical nuance we have. So... Uh- Okay. I'll, I'll interrupt you there for a moment, yeah. Robert, to tell you that on my audition for the military band, I was uh, I was told that I wasn't playing. Uh, uh, I was playing a very rubato uh, uh, piece of piece of music uh, uh, phrase, and I was told that I didn't play in a military style. So. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. okay. Well, it was a va- it was a it was a Weber clarinet concerto that I didn't play in a military style, but you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I agree. There are many musicians that don't know uh, how to play in a rubato style. Yeah, yeah. So as I said, there's three things a, a musician not do. One, create that imagery of movement. I I spend the first at least a third of my book talking about that, the use of arsis and thesis and the connection of notes, etc. The other thing is um, you must, the musician must use all of the conventions and nuances of musical performance. Okay, we mentioned a couple of them, rubato, tenuto, uh, playing pianissimo. That's, That's one thing I find most musicians and certainly bands, they don't play pianissimo. Mm -hmm. And if you don't play pianissimo, then none of the rest of the dynamics uh, are within balance. And if you can't play pianissimo, there's some things you can't do. You can't do some of the rubatos and the the quick uh, expressive turns of phrase that great artists do because they have the capability of playing pianissimo. So that's important. So we, we've got all, all of these nuances. Uh, I talked about attacks and releases, not just the ability to attack and release together, which of course is part of technique. You have to do that. But the style of the attack and the release has to be within the mood of the music. How many times have I heard a performance and bands are really band directors are so guilty of this it seems 
the, this phrase is coming down, this, this gorgeous piece of music, and it's going out, let's say, Irish tune from County Derry. And you get to this last, which we played in Clonatilvi, I think. But uh, this, mm-hmm. this, this piece comes down, and, and, all, and here it comes in, and all of a sudden it's, chop! they chopped off the end of it. Instead of just letting it feather out and evaporate into nothing. So you, using, using that nuance, knowing that that nuance is what an artist uses all the time. And starting a phrase, start from nothing and just let it blossom instead of just bam, and there it goes. Um, uh, musical attacks and releases, um, the use of accent and emphasis, tenuto, rubato, uh, controlled pianissimo. These are the nuances that I talk about you should use and how to use them in, 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 my, in my book. But that's where it starts. So knowing about these nuances, having an idea of where to use them and how to use them, and then making the music move horizontally, that's where it starts. <laughs> that's, that can be learned. Now, the great artists... They take those same nuances, and because they have this special creativity, inspiration, whatever we might call it, they 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 pull, they know just where to put them. They have that feeling for where to put them. But that can also be, uh, I I think the I think your feelings can can be helped. Teachers need to teach this in the very beginning, and they don't. They'll teach. Uh, do, re, mi, re, do, or whatever, okay? But they could say, so you're teaching it in the very beginning. And and I think that's uh, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> well, I, I have some questions on, on yeah. this, Robert. Um, and uh, I'm going to use your pianissimo um, uh, example um, to ask the first question which is when we have a group in front of us, and I'm sure Tacoma Concert Band never had any uh, issues with understanding your interpretation of P- pianissimo, um, but there can be a tension between uh, the group of musicians and the conductor when the conductor has a uh, an idea of what that pianissimo is, what that real pianissimo is, and when the musicians feel that they are playing pianissimo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. beyond stopping and reinforcing and stopping and reinforcing, how do we as conductors communicate effectively to our band as to what a real pianissimo actually is? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. One of your statements is so true. They think they're playing, playing pianissimo, <laughs> yeah. but they're not. Uh, certainly a, demonst- a demonstration always helps. It always helps. Mm-hmm. You know, you're standing in front of your band and you're, you're rehearsing the clarinet section and you say, no, 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 softer, softer. It's too loud, softer. Okay, and, and they try, but the softer they play, the, the worse it sounds because they've never individually learned to control a pianist. Mm-hmm. And that's why they can't do it. Um, so an example might be, I might... Uh, call upon my principal clarinet player and say, play this passage as soft as you can. And he plays it and it's so soft you can barely hear it. And then you say, that's the way I want it to sound. You need to practice until you can do that. That's certainly one way. Another way is to sing. I mean, I sing all the time. 
well in in, in front in front of, of the band and, and and make examples of this is soft and and not that's not soft this things like that and then of course go listen to the marine band listen to them play soft you know go listen to the Seattle symphony listen to what soft really is if people don't know what it, you just said, asked that question. If people don't know what soft is, they they probably can't reproduce it. So we first first they have to know, and then it's a matter of insisting. No, that's not soft enough. No, 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 softer, softer, softer. And by the way, you said you're sure the Tacoma Concert Band. No, they they have the same problem. You know, <laughs> they have the same problem. They don't want to play soft enough, and so it's. I, I was trying to be nice, Robert. I know a few I, of the I, members listen to this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a constant reminder: softer, softer, softer. That's it's easy to play loud, but it takes a real musician to play soft. That's an old phrase that I've heard many, mm. many times. It takes a real musician to play soft. And uh, because it's easy to play loud. <clears throat> and that's the other thing. If you can play very soft with control, you don't have to play super loud to the point where it's ugly. All right. You, you, you can play a controlled forte and it's still big because your soft is so soft. Uh, Tim Rainish wears a T-shirt to his rehearsals that says "Forte is not a loud dynamic." <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, Good. and uh, and it's yeah, it's, it's just about increasing that uh, that 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 range, that dynamic range. I think a lot mm-hmm. of the time, and that's sometimes musicians, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as a, when when I'm in the chair uh, of maybe not hearing that enough or maybe not listening enough. I, I want to talk a little bit about that beginning band because there's many people that that work with beginning bands or with uh, less experienced community bands that will listen to this show and um one of the things that i think conductors can be uh, that we can be guilty of is just trying to get through the score mm-hmm. uh, just trying to get from beginning to end get it get all the notes in the in the right place uh, and, and expressiveness we we sort of we'll teach that later <laughs> we'll get exactly, to that exactly that's what happens yes how how do we incorporate teaching expressiveness at that very beginning so that it doesn't get lost and it doesn't get forgotten about by including it immediately everything you just said is so true we we want to get the right notes in the right place at the right time and we do do that and we're satisfied or we run out of time to do the rest because we put it off to the end. <clears throat> There's the problem, I think. You can you can teach, if you have a concept of how you want it to sound, it starts with that. The conductor has to know exactly how he wants it to sound, not just the right notes in the right place, but the musicality of it. You can teach that as you go along. So many times I've heard uh, a, a conductor of a, of a band, let's say if I'm, I'm listening to them rehearse or helping them. So they'll, they'll go through this passage, let's say with the, whatever section it is at whatever level it is. And the, the kids are playing you know, the wrong notes or the wrong rhythms. And he finally gets it right. Okay. They finally gets the right note in the right place. And he says, good, that's it. And goes on. <laughs> it's not it. Now, what about the musicality of it? What about starting it soft and crescendoing here? How about stressing this note or that note? 
So you, you incorporate it right in there. And if you're going to work on a passage and you don't have time maybe to do any more than get it in tune, okay? So they play it and you say, okay, we've got it in tune. You don't say, get it in tune. That's great. And we go on, you say, okay, it's in tune, but we have to work on the phrasing a little bit, the musicality a little bit, and we'll do that. And you go on. At least you know that they know it's not done yet. Hmm. And so, okay, we're working this phrase and the whole, the whole band is making this wonderful crescendo and diminuendo. First of all, I have to make sure it's a wonderful crescendo and diminuendo <laughs> because you're starting soft and then that sort of thing. But at the same time, at the top of this phrase, I want to, I want to stretch it. I want a rubato. And so I'm going to conduct this. And if they don't follow it, we're going to talk about it. So mm. I'm not just happy that they can play those notes. I want it to be expressive by either the change of dynamics, stressing a certain note or adding a rubato. You do it as you go along. I think even with beginners and, and, uh, I think that's that's the secret. It's you can't put it off to the end. You you have to do it as you go along. Do we do we overprogram, um, Robert? And, I, and I, that's a very wide question, considering I'm asking a, a sort of a global globally. Do we do we overprogram? Uh, a Texas band obviously is very different to a, a band <clears throat> here in the west coast of Ireland. Um, but sometimes we have a tendency. Or do we have a tendency to maybe program beyond the ensemble's ability to be able to play the music and play it expressively? Um, yeah. Or is it possible to play music that might be technically very challenging and maybe we don't get it accurately, play it accurately, but we can still play it expressively? Uh, are, are, when programming, should we be programming maybe uh, slightly easier music or we should we still challenge, still be playing that challenging music? Well, both, I think, and it depends upon where you're going to play it. But the first part of your statement is so true. So many band directors, orchestra, choir directors, so forth, but let's say band directors, so many band directors program music they can't play. It's too difficult. So you program something that's too difficult. Now that difficulty could be speed. It could be tempo. It could be in the number of notes, flexibility, technique, or it could be uh, range. Uh, they don't have the ability to play that high or that low. It could be the dynamic range. Uh, they, they, they don't have the ability to play that soft for that long. Uh, there's, there's a lot of reasons they don't have that ability. And as soon as the music is too difficult, intonation and tone quality go out the, the, the window because they're trying so hard just to get the notes. They, they, they can't concentrate on intonation and uh, tone quality, let alone musicality. So I think that's a huge mistake to program, constantly, continually program music they can't play. Now, that being said, you also have to challenge the band. So if you're a, a band that's involved in contests, don't program a piece you can't play. Okay. Now you might program that difficult, challenging piece for your local uh, school concert, where perhaps as the audience does, don't recognize that there's a whole lot of technical problems there. Uh, or you simply do that piece 
to do it in rehearsals and not really maybe program it. But yes, you, you need to challenge the band with things that are a bit above their level. Can you still play it musically? Yes. As long as those technical spots aren't so difficult that, you know, they, they just can't play it. However, you can play the rest of the piece musically. You know, maybe there's just spots you can't play. But if you're going to a contest or an important uh, concert where there's going to be a lot of people you want to impress, uh, then don't program that piece. <laughs> <laughs> when, we, when we're in rehearsals and we, we have a piece in front of us that for whatever reason, maybe it's the uh, test piece, um, it's been picked for us. Uh, and oh, we kind okay. of know maybe it's that slight level just above our comfort zone uh, is there ways that we can work on expressiveness on a piece that might be that little bit too difficult for us um, technically speaking uh, yes I think there is and that is to first of all have have a concept the conductor and then the band a concept of the entire piece okay where is it going where are the important spots here uh, in order to make the music flow horizontally, uh, the overall concept of the piece. Then, phrase by phrase, I think the conductor has to prepare in advance, the, the musical lines, the phrases, the melodies of the piece, how to shape them musically. And then you teach that and have those parts that they can play, play very expressively. Mm. Those parts that you have a lot of trouble with, you're probably going to be lucky just to get through them. Okay. You're <laughs> going to get through them. They still know what they, what you want them to do. Uh, but let's, you know, you got to get the right notes in the right place with a good tone and in tune that has to be done. You always have to have a good sound and in tune. If it's not in tune, it's ugly. <laughs> I think that's number one, a good sound in tune then we can, you know, make music. But I would work on the total concept of the piece, uh, where the loudest parts are, where the softest parts are, how we get to them, the musical line, and teach those spots as you go along. So, yes, I think you can. And you, you may have to just do the best you can with those, those spots that, that are so difficult. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. You mentioned a couple of times in, in your, your answers and in your thoughts about expressiveness, the ability to listen to others, um, either people, you know, the solo performer in your, your group, the, the principal performer, uh, great recordings. Uh, we live at a time where it's, it's easier uh, at the drop of a hat to be able to listen to the greatest recordings um, uh, and maybe, maybe three or four variations on, on a particular piece. Uh, and yes, um, people may be listening to music less than they did in the past. It certainly doesn't seem to be uh, part of the home life of many kids, uh, but even adults, uh, amateur adults as well, uh, growing uh, in, in their homes. Um, how important is listening to professional recordings, listening to your own recordings maybe as well, to the ability to um, learn uh, expressiveness as a musician or as a band? Extremely important. It has to, actually it starts there. Yeah. If you don't have a concept of music, of musicality, of expressiveness, if you have no concept of that, you can't do it. 
It's just like making a beautiful sound on your instrument. If you don't know what a good sound sounds like, how are you going to do it? So it starts with that. What is good intonation? Uh, kids don't know that. You know, you have two or three clarinet players play and it sounds awful. It's out of tune. And you say, no, get it in tune. But they don't know what in tune sounds like. Yeah. So you have to get them in tune. And then you say, that's what in tune sounds like. You have you listen to a great clarinet player and you say, that's what a clarinet sounds. So we listen to a great band. That's what I'm trying to get to. Yes, it starts with concept of sound. Uh, you, you have to have that all the time. If you don't have the concept of what it is, if the conductor better know for what he wants to hear. I think some of them don't. I really don't. I don't think, I think a lot of conductors, <laughs> or maybe they do know what they want to hear, and they look at the music and they think they're hearing that, but mm. they're not hearing that. And, and so there's a breakdown. Did I answer your question now? Um, you did. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, and many okay. other questions that I had too. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I often describe um, that, that uh, you know, playing an instrument um, to my students, um, like, uh, you know, and never having listened to that instrument, uh, like starting a marathon and having done all the training for that marathon, but not having a map, not knowing where you're actually going on yes. that on that journey um there's so many performers and it, it if i ever have the opportunity to work with new students that's normally one of the first questions that i'll ask is to ask ask them to name two or three famous performers of their instrument and it's shocking how many shocking oh, yeah. how many yeah, yeah. cannot name yeah. famous performers of their own instrument and, I, and i'll say that for for some adult musicians i know as well um yeah. Yeah. actually i forgot to address that at the beginning of your question which how important is listening? It is a major push. Listen, 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 listen. All the time, listen to great artists, listen to what they sound like, listen to what they do with those nuances that I talk about. Listen to how they use them. Yeah, nothing more important, I don't think, <clears throat> is listen. Yeah, I agree. Thanks, Robert. Um, Robert, uh we're getting to the to the end of the, the show, but before we go, I want to move on to a segment that I'm calling now Off the Rostrum. And it's where we get to know you uh, outside of that musical world and some of the things that you love and some of the things that you don't love. So I have a few simple, short questions to ask you. All right. All um, right. And let's see, let's see how we get on with this. So um, what is your favorite book? And it can't be your own one. What? <laughs> My, my favorite book, gee, I don't, you know, I'm not so sure I have one favorite book. Mm. Uh, when, when I sit down to read, other than, uh, say, text-type books where I'm trying to learn something um, in particular, I like, I like novels, you know, I like mystery novels. Mm. And so uh, there's a number of, of, of writers, you know, James Patterson, for example, I like his books. Brown, I like his books. Uh, Tom Clancy. Uh, so I like to, to, you know, for casual reading, that's what I like to do. As far as a single book, I can't say that I have one. In that's particular. okay. That's okay. <laughs> you don't have to pick one. <laughs> um, what's been your favorite ever holiday? And it doesn't have to be Ireland with the bat. <laughs> oh, well, I have to start with that Ireland. Okay. <laughs> but other, th other than Ireland, my wife and I travel a lot. We have been really lucky. 
to travel a lot. And again, boy, it's hard for me to pick a holiday that's my favorite. But I, we like to take cruises. So we like to go on a cruise. Uh, we just enjoy it very much, we, the, being on the ship and then where it goes, etc. Boy, favorite holidays is a tough one. We took, uh, not too long ago, uh, let me pick types of holidays. Not too long ago, we took a, uh, we, we rented a car in Germany and drove all around Germany and Austria. And I just loved that. I just remember mm. that so much. I thought Germany was beautiful and uh, I loved driving on the Autobahn. Uh, <laughs> no just, speed limits. <laughs> no speed limits. Boy, I loved it. And if, if, if you don't go fast enough, man, they'll likely push you off the <laughs> road. True. But, but I, uh, at any rate, I loved that. One of our recent trips, which we took and got home from just in time before the COVID, was a trip to South America. We went to Brazil and Argentina. Loved it. Just loved it. We happened to, first of all, my wife and I like to dance. And so uh, we wanted to take this opportunity to learn the Argentine tango, which of course is, it began in Buenos Aires. So we took uh, tango lessons from a professional tango teacher in Buenos Aires. That was a thrill. When we were in um, Brazil, we got to go to the carnival in Rio. We were there just, wow. at, the, just at the right, oh, and it's hard to describe how incredible Rio is at the time of Carnival. So that, that trip stands out. But then of course, I've been to London and Paris and, and Venice and I've been fortunate. That's oh, another trip one. that I have to say stands out as uh, when I took a trip a number of years ago to uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg. That really stands out, yeah. Uh, just to see the Kremlin in person is just, wow, what an incredible, fortress that is and uh saint petersburg and the architecture is wonderful so if you hadn't have become a musician what would you have done do you think well i think <laughs> what i really wanted to do was be a professional athlete all right now i can't say i would have done that because <laughs> i wasn't good enough mm. but uh i uh i i that was my first love. I would have loved to have been a professional athlete, either a what baseball was your sport? player. Baseball. Well, baseball, uh, I was the best at, but uh, all through uh, all through school, I played baseball and tennis and um, ran on the track team and and basketball. So I even played football in, in junior high school. You know, that's up for, for me, it was up through ninth grade. But then I didn't get any bigger, and I thought if I tried to play in high school, I would get killed. So, uh, but uh, so my sports were really were best. Best sports were baseball and tennis, and I still play tennis. If, what else would I have wanted to be? Um, an airline pilot, an airline pilot. And I still regret that when I was younger, I didn't learn how to fly. I mm. uh, I have a good friend who's a pilot. And he says, well, it's not too late, Bob. You should be learning to fly now. And I don't know. I don't I don't think so. Not at this age. But yeah, an airline pilot. I would have, uh, you know, that's, nice. I would have loved to have been an airline pilot. Last question, Robert, before we go. Um, what motivates you? Oh, boy. Motivates me musically, you mean? Uh, in in life, generally. It can be musically or not musically. Oh, I, I don't know how to answer that. Certainly music motivates me. Family, family, of course. Uh, 
I guess there's nothing more important than, than family, really, in the, in, in the end. Uh, I love to, to play sports. I still play tennis and golf and travel. Uh, I don't know if that answers the question or not, but uh... <laughs> it's been great to um, it's been great to chat to you, Robert, and um, it's been great to get to know you that little bit more, and great to connect after after a few years. Um, if people want to find out more about you and the book, where can they do that, Robert? Yes, and and I hope they will. Um, I would go to my uh, website, <clears throat> which is www.expressivemusic.com dot com expressivemusic.com and on that website they will find out everything they need to know about my book and whether it interests them any further or not uh, there will be reviews of the book on there and uh, you know how how to get the book and and also some things about me and my background and history so I would hope that they would do that Another way is through Facebook, if they went to the name of my book, uh, Expression, The Essence of Music, if you went to that on Facebook, it would take me to my, uh, what, what's called a fan page on, on Facebook, which talks uh, about me and, and the book and so forth. So, and I would love it if they would get on my mailing list, which they can go get to through expressivemusic.com. I will have links to all of that on the globalbandroom.com and you'll be able to find it there and in the show notes to this very episode, so just click away. Uh, Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Um, uh, congratulations on the book and um, looking forward to seeing you again very soon, I hope. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much again for joining me and my guests in the band room this week. I'll be back next episode talking to more great guests from around the band world. So head over to wherever you get your podcasts from and make sure you subscribe. If you've enjoyed the episode, maybe even leave us a review and share it with your band buddies. In the meantime, you can stay up to date with me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Global Bandroom and on our website, globalbandroom.com. Until next time, I'll see you back in the band room.